Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We're getting to the end of our study in this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And remembering Paul is in prison in Rome, and he writes um, several letters, what we know as the prison epistles. He's going to write um, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and he'll also write a letter to a guy named Philemon, who is probably one of the church leaders that lives in Colossae. And he writes to Philemon um, about a runaway slave of his that Paul happened to meet while he was in Rome in prison. And Paul sends this Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter about how now that both slave and master, or runaway slave and master, are both believers in Christ, are both new creations, are both part of the church, what should Philemon's response be? And so, these are those letters, and here at the end, towards the end, here in chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5 here in a second, Paul is actually going to address as, as part of what's called the household codes, meaning how, how do we live in the midst of of, you know, kind of real life on earth and real relationships on earth as believers. And he addressed first husband and wife, and then he addressed last week we looked at uh, children and parents. And this week, in keeping with the household codes, we look at a relationship that was um, very much a part of society in the first century, and that is slaves and masters. And the reason it's called household, you know, the household codes and how this falls under the household is that the slaves would have been considered part of the household of the master. And so, uh, Paul is going to address that relationship. Yeah, start this way. Anybody seen the movie Thor Ragnarok? It's a good one. It's the third iteration of the Thor movies. I was reminded of this by Allie Burton this morning. There's this great scene. There's a guy, Jeff, Gold, you know, Jeff Goldblum, and he plays this um, grandmaster. And the grandmaster is kind of the, uh, the leader of a, of, a, of a scavenger planet, if you will. And um, noted on the scavenger planet was that everyone that lived there in some form or another was enslaved by, by Goldblum, who was the, the grandmaster. And someone comes to tell Goldblum's character, grandmaster, that there is a revolution, there's an uprising. And they say, grandmaster, um, you know, there's a revolution coming. And, and Goldblum's character looks and says, revolution? How did this happen? And Topaz, who's the one that was the messenger, said, well, I, I don't know, but the arena's mainframe for the obedience discs have been deactivated and the slaves have armed themselves. Jeff Goldblum says, oh, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that word. Topaz says, mainframe? He says, no, 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 the, why, why would I not like mainframe? No, the S word. He says, oh, Sorry. The prisoners with jobs have armed themselves. This is okay. That's better. And we don't like the word either. 
And it is difficult for us to understand uh, what Paul is doing when he addresses this um, arrangement that was so prevalent in his society in that day. So, so let me read the passage this morning, and then I want to come back and, and talk about it and, and then make some observations for how this might apply to us. Here's the way that Paul writes it in um, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, realizing he's it's all under the umbrella of what it is to live as those who are filled with the Spirit, he says. Bond servants, or yours might have slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. And masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would not only bless the, the reading and the hearing of your word this morning, but that, Father, these words that Paul penned to the Ephesian church almost 2,000 years ago, Father, we'd understand them as Paul intended the Ephesians to understand them. And then, Father, we'd be able to, to take that meaning and then, and then apply that as it fits to our life today in the 21st century. And so, we ask that you would do all these things this morning, and I, I pray that uh, the words I speak would be helpful in that understanding, but Father, I also am trusting your Holy Spirit this morning with, with Bibles open and, and hearts tuned to what you would have to say to us, that Father, you would, you would have your way in our lives this morning. We ask this the only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I have taught this passage before um, a couple of other times, and I'll tell you, most of my um, impulse or my instinct has been in the past to immediately read the passage and move to um, what it looks like, what it would look like today with employers and employees, that realizing we don't have a uh, structure, an economic, socioeconomic structure in our culture today that has slaves and masters. And so, looking for what is most applicable or what would be the closest application is going directly to employers and employees. And I do think that this passage has plenty to say about that. But, but I don't want to rush past what Paul is saying in his context in the first 
century. The first observation I would make about this is the fact that Paul is addressing these bondservants, these slaves. The fact that he's addressing them at all in these household codes is radical. As best that can be um, discerned or, or gleaned from ancient history, um, nowhere else really were slaves addressed. Slavery, as I said, it was the dominant economic uh, relationship in the Roman Empire. Maybe as many as 60 million slaves in the first century in the Roman Empire, which would account for about one-third of the population of the day. And this isn't just uh, domestic slaves or household slaves or servants that worked in the homes, but there were, there were those that performed manual labor, and there were those who worked or served as slaves who were part of a professional class. There were, there were doctors who were slaves and teachers who were slaves, administrators who served as slaves. This pro- professional class was not immune to slavery. How one became a slave, you could be inherited, according to the Roman law. You could be purchased and sold. You could be taken in as a slave because of bad debt. You were also um, could be procured as a slave um, as part of being a prisoner of war, spoil of war. When a war would be waged in the Roman Empire, um, those who were not Roman would be subjugated uh, to domestic slavery. No, No one, as far as we can tell, seemed to question if slavery was right or not. The philosophers probably come the closest to it, uh, namely one named Seneca. He argued um, that there shouldn't really be bad conditions uh, for the slaves. They should be granted some rights and some kind of status, even though they were often denied them. But nowhere do you find that this institution was challenged or questioned, wasn't spoken of as right or wrong. No one questioned the relationship. Roman slaves, often like all slaves, they faced dehumanizing treatment. You look at Roman law, you'll recognize that in human ways, slaves were often treated, and under the Roman law, slaves were, were called chattel. They were an item of personal property, and there were um, animate and inanimate objects of personal property, and a slave would be an animate object. And so, what Paul's doing here, and I want us to be clear, Paul is going to bring the gospel to bear on a relationship that was complex and problematic. And so, he's addressing the slaves. And by addressing them, what he's making clear right up front is that these slaves who were believers were fully part of the Christian community. They had no half standing in the church. They were were full 
uh, members of the church. They, as, as believers in Christ, um, all that uh, separated uh, men and women socially and all the hierarchies and all, of, all that gets left at the door of the church for believers. Paul in no way is advocating slavery. I'm going to talk about it in just a second. But one of the ways you know that is because he, he provides no Old Testament um, uh, uh, proof for his argument. He, he doesn't rely upon the Old Testament. So if you went back and you looked at husbands and wives, Paul goes back to actually the creation account and quotes from Moses. When you look at children and the relationship with parents, Paul goes back to the fifth of the Ten Commandments. And while the Old Testament, and in, in, in particular, you could see Exodus, you could see Numbers, where, where there is case law related to the treatment of slaves, Paul doesn't go back to the Old Testament to draw upon any of that material. In, in some ways, I think Paul is not seeking to entrench this relationship, but at the same time, Paul is not um, on a mission of social crusade here. He, he's casting a vision for this social structure of, of what it looks like when believers live with one another in harmony. And he gives no theological justification for the, for the institution of slavery itself. But Paul, listen to his other words about slavery. In 1 Timothy 1, Slave traders are listed amongst the most grievous and wicked sinners. The, uh, amongst the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers or slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 7, he emphatically, Paul's going to make the case to the Corinthians, that there's no circumstance in this life that prevents us from living out the gospel. There's not a circumstance you can find in this life that keeps you from living out the gospel, wherever you may find yourself. But at the same time, he's not, in 1 Corinthians 7, supporting slavery. He's a champion, actually, for freedom. He says, well, were you a bondservant when you were called? Well, don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. He's essentially saying, listen, when you, when you come to Christ, when the gospel comes and radically takes your life over, there's no circumstance in which you cannot live that out. Even if you find yourself a slave who has come to Christ, you can still live out the gospel in the midst of that situation. But he also says, but if you have a chance to get your freedom, avail yourself of it. In Galatians, Paul's going to pull the plug on the all the social status and all the distinctions that the world makes, the, the power structures, all that, like we said, is left at the doorstep of the church. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you're all one 
in Christ Jesus. Finally, in his letter to Philemon, as Paul's writing about Onesimus, in reality, where Paul doesn't exert pressure on Philemon and doesn't tell Philemon what he ought to do, Paul certainly reminds Philemon of the gospel. And that and that who Philemon is as a believer in Christ has changed or should have fundamentally changed how he sees everything. So, again, Paul is not on a social crusade, but yet Paul also knows the gospel and its effect in our hearts and minds undermines slavery, changes how we see how we think, how we act. In Philemon, verse 16, he talks about Onesimus is no longer a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant. He's a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Christianity, the The emphasis has always been on the transformation of the heart, the transformation of individuals. The transformation of the heart, the transformation on individuals. This is the greatest influence on society. It is not by, you know, by the upside-down way of thinking, hey, we've got to transform society so that individuals will be transformed. The gospel comes and says, no, we... We change hearts and minds and people. And that has a ripple effect into changing society. But the change in society will never change the people of that society. Some have speculated maybe that Paul is not condemning slavery here. Because if he promoted the abolition of slavery, it's very possible many slaves would have come to Christianity for the wrong reasons. In the end, I I think Paul makes clear, Christianity doesn't promise that we're ever released from the present circumstance that we're in. But Christianity does come with a power by which we can endure any circumstance. As Christianity came to have more influence on culture in the world of slavery, it, it undermined slavery from the very core, undermined it from within. Paul fundamentally does not see himself as a social crusader. And while there are truly, and there were, you know, horrific um, things attached to slavery, Paul, first and foremost, was concerned about the spread of the gospel. That by spreading the gospel, the gospel would have its way. And it would have its way with any cultural form of inequity. And I think there's a message for us today. Now, I want to be clear, when we think about the slavery of the New Testament, we're thinking about a slavery that in many ways is different than slavery of the 18th and 19th century here in America and before. But the inequality that came in society is 
not much different than it was then. To be a slave in any age or any generation is still to be a slave. We live in a day where I think a lot of Christians, particularly young believers, are concerned that what we have called traditional Christianity has sometimes propped up various forms of social injustice. And so, young kids that grow up in the church, they go off to college, it is easy for them to be told, hey, they have been a part of a system of inequality that needs to be addressed or, or more likely needs to be obliterated. Sometimes the very best you hope for is that they just become social crusaders in the name of Christ. <clears throat> but that is sometimes to forget or to marginalize the fundamental message of the church and the message of the gospel in favor of a crusade. Paul's approach to a system he does not condone and yet does not outright condemn is to elevate the gospel in such a way that it undermines the very system. The gospel leaves with it a message of absolute equal obligation in Jesus Christ upon the slave and upon the slave owner in this passage. One writer said it this way. said, the gospel found slavery in the world. And in many regions, particularly the Roman and the Greek, it was a very bad form of slavery. The gospel began at once to undermine it with its mighty principles of the equality of all souls and the mystery and dignity of manhood and of the equal work of redeeming love wrought for all souls by the supreme master. But its plan was not to, to batter, or, uh, but to undermine. So while the gospel in one respect left slavery alone, it doomed it in another. And the last thing I'll say about this, and then I want to move to some application, is that when we see what is inherently unjust, or we see what props up in a harmful way inequity, in a way that, that one has advantage or takes advantage over another group, we in the church should not look for ways in which to prop that up, but ways in which to say no. As those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we all stand on level ground at the cross. And, and there's... Um, there's part of the church that, that by the very gospel we should look and say, no, you know what, we're not, we're not a part of that. But at the same time, it has not become our crusade, yet it 
enhances the urgency all the more that we would be people who live the gospel and speak the gospel in every setting that we're in. Now, let me look at some application. One is that I think we are to live as believers with a single eye to the glory of Christ. We serve, and every one of us serves. We serve as we would serve Christ. We don't have two masters. In fact, we cannot have two masters. We have one master in whom we serve. Not only do we live with a single eye, um, we, we live with a carefulness, a, a holy carefulness. He talks about there in verse 5, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In the Roman world, the, the slaves were often ruled in such a way as to make them afraid. It was this effective motivator to make them productive and efficient. Yet fear and trembling that we would stand before Christ with is quite different. Fear and trembling before the second person of the Godhead is much more reverence and awe. When one stands before God in fear and trembling, the response is, is worship. Paul says that it's a sincerity of heart. It's an interesting phrase, sincere heart. You know, sometimes it in, in Latin, it comes out without wax. And the day and time, people would sell cracked pottery. They would cover the cracks with wax so they wouldn't be seen. And how you inspected it was that you held the pottery up to the light, to the sunlight, to see if you could see the cracks. The, the, the Greek language has a phrase um, for what is authentic and real and genuine and sincere. It means sun-tested. not only with a sincere heart, but with obedience. Doing the will of God from the heart. I would say, some people uh, take Christianity and in their own way, by adopting the bits they like and ignoring the bits they don't, they create their own religion in fact, it's religion that is another way of doing their own will, picking and choosing what they keep and what they ignore. Freedom of a Christian lies in full and absolute service to Christ. In fact, one has said, made the observation, you're never more free until every thought is brought into subjection to the will of the Most High. No being a Christian, really. Me, me be a Christian. You're not living Christian life if Christ doesn't sit on the throne of your life. Well, 
with an eye to the glory of Christ, with a sincere heart, with obedience, with a sense of divine oversight. He says, not with eye service. You could think of an elementary classroom. You remember when the teacher would leave and she would say, now listen, I'm going to step out of the room, but I want you to be quiet. The minute she would step out of the room, it would all break loose, wouldn't it? And then she would appoint some poor child to a destiny of ridicule to be the name taker, right? Not with eye service. The kind of service that, that an artist has that requires no urging, no stimulus. It's the work before them, the excellence that they pursue. See, what happens is grace grows us and matures us beyond the need of, you know, human control or human stimulus, that, we, that grace grows us in a way that, that we begin to want that everything that our fingerprints would be on would honor the Lord. He goes on and says that we must work for the Lord, look to the Lord for our reward, not the men. Well, it doesn't mean we don't work for a wage. Certainly, you should work for a wage. But, it, but what he's challenging is, is that's not the primary motivation for the Christian, and, or at least not in that sense. Really, there is a wage. There is a reward that is higher for us. And in, in, in uh, Hebrews eleven six, 6, um, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, and he says two things, must believe two things, that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. He goes on to tell about Moses. And Moses looking at all the treasure of Egypt. By faith said, no, the reward from God is greater than all of that treasure. Sometimes it'll feel like in this life, I mean, you work, you labor, you toil. There's no recognition. You're not getting what you're due. But, but what Paul would say here is, listen, your reward is merely postponed. Instead of the present praise you think you might have or the misunderstanding you have instead, um, the, the being misrepresented, all of that can be endured even through disappointment because of how glorious the reward will be. Charles Spurgeon said, an hour with Jesus will make up for a lifetime of persecution. One smile for him will repay us a thousand times over for all the disappointments and discouragements we've endured. Well, time's flying away. Here are a few more. I think this truth not only does it orient us in how we view life and how we should serve, because all of us, whether in some setting you are a servant or some setting you consider yourself a master, we all are servants of Christ. Our, our spirits should be elevated. They should be raised. We should be those on the planet as believers 
that work with the energy and, and the heart of those that follow the greatest leader that there ever is or will be. The one who's but whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is that. That's who we follow. I like how Spurgeon says it, and I'll give you one more quote here in a minute, but he says, Alas, says one, I'm worn out. I cannot keep on at this rate. My position is so terribly trying that I cannot hold on much longer. It strains not only muscle and sinew, but nerve and heart. Nobody could bear my burden long. My husband is ungrateful. My children are unkind. Here's what Spurgeon says. Oh, poor heart. There are many others who wear the weeping willow as well as thyself. But be of good courage. And look at thy case in another light. If the burden is to be borne for Jesus' sake, who loved thee and gave himself for thee, by whose precious blood thou art redeemed from the pains of hell, canst thou bear it? Canst thou bear it? It should lift us above. It should lift us above a spirit of being people who hold back, you know, thinking, how, how little can I get away with? I mean, how, how little can I get away with doing to still get my paycheck at the end of the month. Instead of how much can we give for the wage we earn, it raises us above the temptation to boast that we all have. It raises us above the craving for recognition, which um, I don't know if you've noticed is a pandemic amongst not only people, but I, it's become a pandemic in the church. Can lift you above the discouragement that comes from human disapproval. That if you've worked hard, if you've worked as unto the Lord, been faithful in the task, the day that has been set before you, at the disappointment of one or many, you can rise above that because of who you serve. Above the disappointment of those things that you endeavor that don't turn out as a success. That success and failure, as it is judged by our peers, is not always the best judge of success and failure. also helps us rise above the days where we feel as though age is catching up with us. It is running us down. And we think, I, the less useful I feel, the less energy that I have, and yet as you wake up, as you give your day to the Lord, trusting that that is no obstacle for him, Well, I'll close with a word to the masters. There's a view of your God-ordained position. Paul reminds that there's no partiality with God. He is the master of all of us. No matter where you fall on the ladder, 
You work directly for him. And God's going to judge you for the stewardship of your leadership. Were you a master in the image of the master? Did you represent God's authority in the place where you were entrusted with authority? Did you pursue God's interests? Or did you merely pursue your own? Do I steward the resources at my disposal for eternal purposes? Do I use my talents to glorify God? Does the quality of my work align with the integrity of God? In my place of work, no matter what my place is, would I be counted as a spiritual asset in that place? Realizing that the place you work is a place, because you are a believer, it has become a space of worship as you serve the Lord. close with an image that Spurgeon shares. When he preaches this passage to his congregation in the 1860s, he says, I can imagine a slave becoming a Christian and so finding peace as to former guilt and obtaining renewal of heart and then Although rejoicing in the Lord, I can well conceive that he would be downcast in view of his sad condition as a bondsman. Says, I see him sitting down and moaning to himself. I am a bondsman under a tyrant master. I've already endured many cruelties and may expect many more. I would be free, but there is no hope of escape since there is no place to which I can flee. Caesar's arm is long and would reach me to the very ends of the earth. I cannot purchase my liberty, nor earn it by long years of faithful servitude. Neither can my fellow bondsmen effect or deliverance by rebellion. For this has been tried and ended in terrible bloodshed. I'm a hopeless, I am hopelessly a slave. What shall I do? How shall I sustain my fate? My life is well nigh intolerable, would Would to God it were at an end. Goes on, I can imagine the poor bondsman going to his cramped up bed under the stair for in any hole or corner the Roman slave might find such little rest as was allowed him. There he would almost wish to sleep himself into another world. But being a Christian as I've supposed he pours out his heart to God in prayer, and in answer to his cry, the Lord sets before him the rich consolation which he has provided for all that mourn. Consolation strong enough to enable him to endure to the end, to glorify the name of Jesus, even under such hard conditions. While yet troubled in mind, this free man of the Lord, who is yet in bonds to man, is met by the Savior himself. He appears to him, I I 
will not say in such form as could be perceived by the eyes, but in vision clear enough to be exceedingly influential over his spirit. Jesus stands before him, the five wounds adorning him like precious rubies or infallible tokens, the face lit up as with unearthly splendor. And it's still marked with old lines of sorrow. And the head bears the thorn crown about its brow. The poor slave casts himself at the Redeemer's feet with astonishment, with awe, and with intense delight. And then I think I hear those dear lips, which are as lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh, say to his poor servant. And by the way, to all of us, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, fulfill thy service bravely. Do it unto me. Forget thy tyrant master and remember only me. Bear on, work on, suffer on, and do all as unto me and not unto men. Then I think I see the brokenhearted captive rising, refreshed and with inward strength, and I hear him say, I will even bear the yoke until my Lord shall call me away. Lest his province shall open up for me a door of liberty, I will patiently abide where I am and suffer all his, all his will hopefully and joyfully serving because he bids me to do it for his sake. Then he says, a vision which would so greatly comfort the poor Roman slave in his extremity may well stand before each one of us. Let us each hear our Savior say, live unto me and do all for my sake. Our service is so much more pleasant and easy than that of the slave. Let us perform it with good will and good service as unto the Lord and not to men. That we would go away from here is our motto. I serve. Let that be emblazoned upon your heart. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do with your word. And I feel that acutely this morning with this passage. That you would meet us where we are. That your word, living and active, would be sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, it would, would get down into the crevices of our soul. And that, Father, by your word, you would change us. That it would not return void this morning. That we would leave this morning with clearer vision of who you are. Father, of who we serve. And, Father, with an anticipation and excitement and joy and vision to the reward in which you so eagerly want us to desire. So we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.